Welcome to the Burley Brew All Things Egg podcast. In this podcast, Tyler Kralichek, the Burley County Extension Agriculture and Natural Resource Agent, and Kelsey Deckert, the Burley County and Morin County Extension Horticulture Agent, discuss current agricultural topics. Topics range from livestock, crops, weed management, farming and ranching, to gardens, lawns, trees, and landscapes. We hope to enrich your life by bringing you the timely, science-based information to apply in your practices. Tyler, we're finally seeing a little bit of a warm-up, which is nice, right? Well, typical North Dakota weather, uh, give it a day and it might be blowing 60 miles an hour and we might get, you know, half a foot of snow, which at this point with the drought situation we've dealt with the last two years, I'm all for some snow, especially the good wet kind that, you know, can definitely kick in some good soil moisture. No doubt. And me personally, like I always say February is the worst month of the year because it seems like it's always the coldest, even though it's the shortest month of the year. It's always like the coldest, you have your extreme colds, and then yeah, you typically see a lot of unpredictable weather and stuff, but the one plus, the really good plus about February, especially in the horticultural world, is here in North Dakota, this is a time that we actually get going and starting seeds, so it gets us excited to be out in the garden and to look forward to those warmer days where we can actually be outside and not be freezing. So Tyler, have you ever started seeds indoor before? You know, I actually have for a different program I had through extension. I actually started a bunch of tomatoes. So I was, I mean, I just was going to ask you why you actually did start seeds indoors. It sounds like you had a program and really a good reason that North Dakotans will start it is one, it's going to open up a lot of new possibilities for your garden. So you're not only limited to growing what's going to be available at our local nurseries and greenhouses in the springs, but then you actually have the opportunity to start your own seeds and you can grow a lot more different varieties of vegetables, flowers, and herbs. In North Dakota, we have these really long winters, right? So our growing season compared to a lot of states is pretty short. And really you're looking at probably a little bit over like 90 days of growing season if you start seeing like seeds that say they take you know 100 days over 100 days you might as well forget it here again unless you've started your seeds indoors and stuff so a couple other advantages that I was just going to mention is using transplants in the spring then instead of directly sowing the seeds that kind of leads to an instant and fuller crop stand to start and it also leads to earlier blooms and harvests. So a couple things to consider when you are starting seeds indoors are your soil, your temperature, moisture, light, containers, seed sources, and fertilizer. And so I'm gonna kind of go through the basics here of what you need to consider and stuff. Starting seeds for some of our seasoned gardeners, it comes like second nature to them. But if you've never done it, it may not be as simple as you think. So kind of starting with the soil, you definitely do not want to use plain garden soil. So you need to find a good seed starting soil or potting mix. It really helps if you find one that retains moisture, just as some of the potting mixes do tend to dry out faster. And the great thing about potting mixes is they're sterile. So that means they're weed and disease free. 
where your garden soil is not going to be that case. It's going to be a lot heavier too, where soil mixes in the store are going to be lightweight. And they typically are going to consist of peat moss, compost, and perlite. So, so Kelsey, say you're one of those do-it-yourself people. I mean, is it possible for you to make your own just with the soil that you have on your property by chance or not? Well, if you have like a composting pile, you can if it's something where you're starting like this is the very first time i would just recommend go for convenience you know just go buy soil and the other thing that's great is typically in the fall a lot of stores are trying to get rid of soils your big box store so just go buy a bag it's going to be on sale and just you know keep it in in a cool place or whatever your garage or downstairs and you'll be ready i mean you you definitely can probably a topic for another conversation on how to go about that but for convenience and if it's your first time just go with a potting mix all right so our temperature that's the next thing that i want to talk about so your seeds are going to germinate better if you keep that soil temperature consistently at or above 70 degrees so you'll want to keep your seed trays that is going to be in that consistently warm place avoid any type of like window seals because they can be drafty and almost probably too cool in the mornings or or even at night where they're not going to germinate so make sure that you have that consistent about 70 or above degrees and that's going to signal those seeds to germinate sometimes it's going to be beneficial to provide like a heat source underneath the plants and so some people will invest in electronic heating mats but it just kind of depends on your house and where you're looking at doing it you don't necessarily have to have a heating mat the next one going into our moisture seeds need to be consistently moist so don't ever let your growing media dry out or become too wet it's recommended to actually use like a spray bottle and mist the soil every day. A watering can can work, but the thing that you have to be careful about that is, I'm sure you've done it, Tyler, if you've had a house plan and you go to water, that water just kind of gushes through and makes the soil rise right up. And yep. so what happens is it can wash away that soil and then your seed's right at the top and it's not going to set root the way it should be. One thing that I have to, I mean, I don't even like to admit this out loud, but I do have to admit this. I truly did not know that water temperature mattered growing up. You always use the hydrant and it was always cold. I grew up assuming that, well, they like cold water. I like to drink cold water. Why wouldn't the plants like that? Right. Yeah. Right. So actually though, when you're watering, just keep it at room temperature. That's what's going to do the best. You know, you talked about having outside plants, getting that outside water. So say, for example, you get that first shot that goes through the garden hose. Usually that seems to be like a thousand degrees until it, you know, you get that cool water, not using that hot water would be ideal as well. Right. Right. And, and the thing is, is people, you got to realize, obviously the outside is a lot warmer in the summer. And so yeah, most people, their water sources is going to be a cooler temperature but your soil's a lot warmer too. We're talking about starting seeds here. So you wanna keep it at room temperature. The next big thing to pay attention to is light. And that is gonna be a key factor. It's not necessarily the quality of light. So there's a lot of different light bulbs out there that you know are grow lights and have different wattage and voltage and everything like that. It's more about the quantity that's gonna matter. Once your plants get sprouted, you may want to provide additional light too. So growing seeds under like 
fluorescent lights are going to aid in keeping that temperature a little bit more consistent. Again, there's a lot of different bulbs out there, whether they're cool or warm bulbs. Big thing is we want to keep those lights about two inches above the plants, but no more than four inches, because if they start lacking light, you're going to end up getting these really skinny, elongated stems. And then just know that they should be under the lights for 12 to 16 hours a day. Kelsey, is there, you talked about getting too close. I mean, obviously if it gets too close, it all could, could dry out growing media, right? Yep. Um, is there a certain temperature we kind of shoot for? Yep. So kind of like I said previously, we want to make sure that your soil temperature is going to be around 70 degrees. And so, I mean, it's a cheap investment. If you're really worried about, you know, how warm it is, or you like to monitor that, go get a soil thermometer. They're a cheap investment and you can find them anywhere uptown. The next thing to know is there are several different types of containers available. One thing is, is your plastic containers are going to work really well just because they can be reused. If you do go that route, you want to make sure that if you're going to reuse them next year and stuff that you are sterilizing them. So to sterilize them is going to be really easy. Just place that container in a solution of bleach or another disinfectant for 30 minutes. And the great thing about plastic containers, they're easy to move easy to fill, they maximize your plant density, and they're reusable. Some disadvantages is that you can get root-bound plants. They also can have transplanting shock. I did say, obviously, that they need to be sterilized and they're not eco-friendly. If they get root-bound, then make sure you're kind of breaking up those roots when you put them in the ground. So there's a lot of different types of plastic containers you can find out there. Some will even have like a cover that's going to assist in retaining the moisture. Some people, when they use that type of container too, you can drape like plastic over or like even add some popsicle sticks into the individual hole, giving it kind of almost like that greenhouse effect. But if you like to be eco-friendly, you could use something that's in your household. And one thing that's super easy is egg cartons. They're going to be biodegradable. They're already divided. So again, you can keep those seeds in an individual area, but you can also find a lot of different biodegradable pots out there, eco-friendly. And so just some advantages, they're eco-friendly, less transplanting shock, but disadvantages, some of them can be costly and then they can become root bound as well. So you always do want to refer to your seed packets because it's going to contain the information you need. You will want to fill your container with soil almost to the brim and make sure that that soil that's in there is moistened. But that label is going to tell you how far down to plant those seeds and typically two to three seeds in there. If it's going to be like the real small ones that are individual, then you can put one or two seeds in there. So if it's a flat that doesn't have the individual cells, you're going to space those seeds about an inch and a half apart before you transplant them into a larger container. If they're in one container space, not individual cells, but you have like the biodegradable or the rounder pot ones, one to two inches apart. So as they grow, you do want to thin out the smallest and the weakest plants. Okay. They're not going to survive. When you do get your seeds planted, have some sort of label, like that's nothing's worse than trying to identify what you have growing when so many plants as seedlings look similar. It's great to put on, this is cucumbers, this is parsley, this is whatever, and then putting the date and you started them so you can see that. Say you've got two that are coming up right next to each other. 
I mean, would it be good practice just to take one of those two and just pluck it from the, the growing media right away just to make sure yes. you... Okay. Yep. It'd be no different, Tyler, than in your garden. I mean, you when people grow lettuce or whatever, some of those real density ones that take up space, you're always going to thin them out because if you don't thin them out, you're not going to have very good quality. They're going to be in competition with one another always. And so it's good to just thin them out, let you have some really strong, good quality plants and stuff. Sure. So just a couple more things to finish up. When you look for seeds, there's many different sources you can find them. So if you are, hey, I love being in the store, you can get out there and you can shop in the store and get seeds. Or maybe, again, our winters are really long and you like looking at looking forward to receiving catalogs in the mail, which you probably would have got around January. So lots of different ways you can get your seed sources and stuff. If you do end up with extra seeds, you can carry them over to next year. But just remember, the fresher the seed, the more viable it will be. So we usually say don't really go over a year. But if you do have leftover seed, you can store those seed packets in an airtight container and keep it in a cool place as well. So that's a just a couple things about purchasing seeds. I said fertilizer was going to be another thing that we were going to talk about. A seed is actually full of food, whether people know that or not. But this food only lasts until you see the first true leaves. And so after those true leaves emerge, we do want to go ahead and fertilize our plants. There's going to be, you know, soluble fertilizers are going to be the most convenient, such as like a miracle grow. And then you're going to want to look for like a balanced fertilizer that's 20-20-20. Again, for if you're brand new and you don't know what that means, those numbers are going to refer to the amount of nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus that you have in that fertilizer. So a balanced one saying equal parts. Biggest thing is, is keep your eyes on the plants, monitor their color. If they're getting pale, they might need a little more fertilizers. And so when you do start with that soluble fertilizer, start it off at like a half strength weekly, and then you can slowly increase it as well. So that's kind of the last thing. Two other little things I'm going to quickly mention is there is out online. I mean, you can find it. There are some different time and temperature charts out there on like, you know, if you're looking at um, starting some seeds, how, how early you should do it before the last frost date. Um, and then when you should look at transplanting them. So I'll just go through a couple of our biggest ones. If you guys are out there listening to this podcast and you have further questions, don't hesitate to contact our office and I will gladly help you with that. So a couple of the popular ones like tomatoes. If you are going to start those from seed, you're going to want to put those in about six weeks before our last potential frost date. And I actually just had a question this morning come in on that. In this Bismarck area, we typically look at our last frost date as May 15th. So your tomatoes, you'll sow them about six weeks prior to May 16th and then when you actually want to transplant them, you'll transplant them two weeks after that frost date. So that's kind of like your safe zone. Lettuce, you can start eight weeks prior, and then you would go ahead and you can throw those in the ground four weeks before that frost date. Onions, those are started from seed 10 weeks prior. And again, those can go in the ground two weeks prior than that last potential frost date. And that's just because both lettuce and onions are gonna be a little bit hardier and can they're not so temperature sensitive like tomatoes. 
like I said, you can find time and temperature charts out there for your area online and everything. When we do get around that May 15th date or you're looking at the date of actually getting them transplanted, one thing you do wanna do if you started those seeds indoors is you want to harden them off. And so hardening them off means that they, you're gradually getting them accustomed to that outdoor environment. And so two weeks prior, you're looking at moving them out, start moving them outside each day for a few hours, start in a shaded area in the afternoon where they're protected from the wind and then bring them in each night before that temperature starts to fall. And you can slowly each day extend their time outside exposing them a little bit more to the sun each day. And then after that two weeks, as long as there's no more freezing temperatures, go ahead and get them in the garden. And the best time to do that is pick an afternoon, like a late afternoon or a cloudy day. Again, that's going to just kind of help with that transplanting shock and everything. So could you set up kind of like an artificial shade to try and help out with that process, you think, or do you think that would be good? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You could definitely do that. If it's been, you know, if you got trees on your property, go there. Or like you said, artificial shade. Yeah, prop something up, put a blanket out there, kind of. Anything like that would be would be great. I mean, we, you just see a lot of times with these tender young transplants is, is sun, sunburn or sun scald on them. And so you usually will see like their leaves will get like this kind of bleach papery, white spots on them and so that just means hey doesn't mean they have a disease it just means they weren't exactly ready for as much sun and temperature that they experienced so sure yeah so hopefully everybody listening out there learned a little bit something about starting seeds and if you've never tried it this year like i said we kind of look at this end of february to go ahead and get started even early march and so something if you guys are looking for a project to do Go ahead and try it. Tyler, what's going on for you this time of year? Now till probably May, there's going to be a lot of ranchers that are going to be raising their hand. And by that, I mean, they're going to try and buy the genetics that they want at uh, some of these bull sales. And I know there's a couple of them that have already occurred, but there's still a gamut of individuals that are still looking forward to having their production sale or guys that are looking to try and find that bull that they think is going to really satisfy the needs of what their cow herd needs. What does EPD stand for? So EPD is the expected progeny difference. So what they end up doing is they take different numbers. So whether it be birth weights, weaning weight, yearling weight, or just measuring the amount of milk, those are kind of the basic EPDs that most people are, uh, will talk about, but it uh, takes the numbers from progeny or sons and daughters of certain sires or bulls and cows, and it compares them. For example, a set of brothers that are six foot four, more than likely, if there's another brother in that family, he's probably going to be right around that six foot four range, or at least, you know, over six. Now, that same family, it's not uncommon that you could have a a brother that ends up being five foot nine. Sometimes genetics do some funky stuff. Say, for example, their great, great grandmother was only five foot two. That's where that five foot nine person might have, you know, got some of their genetics. It just kind of carries along. So EPDs are an interesting thing. And, you know, typically they are extremely accurate. But like I said, sometimes you do have those outliers that are, you know, five inches shorter, like in the human world. I find genetics very interesting too. Quick little story with our, with our first daughter, she's got very uniquely colored eyes. And so we would talk and I have these dark eyes and my husband has like these hazel eyes that change color and stuff. But both our families, there's blue eyes and green eyes and everything like that. And 
if you've taken any type of genetics class, you learn about these dominant and recessive genes and everything like that. So our doctor, I felt like said it best. And he said, yeah, so we all got like these different genes, you know, that are dominant and recessive and everything like that. But he's like, what really comes down to is how each of those individual genes are expressed. And so I always take that in consideration when I look at her eyes, because she's just got eyes of her own and everything, and they're really unique. So what are some things getting back into these wholesales? um, What, what are they when you talked about like birth weight and weaning weight, what, what are ranchers, farmers looking at in those categories? Sure. You know, kind of like any decision that you make within your business, within your home or anything else, there's not necessarily one thing that fits every single household, no different than a herd, depending on where you're located in the country. Now, just kind of bring the focus back to Burley County. We're not necessarily looking for 1800 pound mama cows, you know, not saying that that's the wrong thing, but typically you're looking cows. And I mean, this is pretty universal around the country. You're looking more anywhere from 1200 to, uh, to 1415. Now there, again, that weight can be a huge difference depending on the breed, what kind of cattle you're trying to produce. And Ultimately, the rancher needs to figure out, okay, what are my priorities? Say an older person that doesn't really have the ability to to go out there and pull calves, or if they're out in a more open range type scenario where you've got all your cows out in the pasture and you don't really have a whole lot of facilities, that's a situation where you're going to look more towards a CED or Cavanese Direct, which is that bull's genetics um, directly correlate with his ability to have cavities. So with what his mom's ability to have small birth weight calves and also have good pelvic store, meaning she's easier calving that way because of the size. And then also birth weight. Usually those lower birth weight calves on average will be easier to come out and stay alive at least to that point. So low birth weight, right. high cavities. If, if you don't have a whole lot of resources to pull now, if that's not as big of an option or, you know, heifers, obviously you want to have a higher cavities and, you know, low birth weight, just to make sure we get a successful pregnancy that first time or a successful raised calf that first year. Cows, they've been through it before. They're a little bigger. Hopefully they're more at their mature size and weight. So we can get away with something that's got just a little bit more birth, depending on what their genetics are. So there again, just kind of depends on what the breeder's looking for. So what would you say Burley County wise, what are our common breeds that we see in this county? When you look around the country, I mean, there's definitely going to be those B Angus and Red Angus are, are pretty prevalent. There are still a few Hereford, which for me, that's near and dear to my heart. That's what I grew up with. In terms of your British breeds, those are kind of the main ones that are in the area. There's also on the what's considered continental European breed, there's a lot of Semitol breeders. There's some Galve and some Charlet. It kind of depends on what each breeder likes. Right. I know there's there's a lot of them who have predominantly Angus influence type cattle, but there's definitely a, a lot of Semitol in the area too, is what I kind of commonly see. But it just also depends because you may be a, a producer who wants to have those big calves that you know wean off the cow at the heaviest mark. And there's other producers who look at the market and they may sell a little bit earlier. They may early wean based on what their costs are. They're obviously interested in a good weaning weight, but they're more targeting a specific weight. So in terms of breeds, if they're looking for the biggest calf possible, more than likely those individuals are going to have a crossbreed type situation because then you bring in heterosis. So whether you're mixing a Hereford Angus or Hereford Semitol or uh, Angus and Semitol or Red Angus Hereford, any of those types of combinations definitely work. But there again, it just kind of works for whatever the producer's looking for with the, the different traits with growth, cavities, milk. There's a lot of things to consider for producers. 
with these EPDs, birth weight, weaning weight, calving ease, milk, those are kind of like our basic ones, right? Yep. Those those and are the so, basic ones that have been around for a long time. Yep. yep. Just for, again, people who maybe don't know it, for your weaning weight, is that a certain amount of days that have gone by or does that fluctuate again, producer to producer? Sure. A weaning weight in terms of what it's supposed to reflect, it's supposed to be the 205 day weight. So okay. the calf should be 205 days old. One of the things that they've been doing here for a number of years has been the adjustment on those. Now, when they figure that in, it's usually within what's called a contemporary group. So you bring in whatever herd it is. And based on the cow's age, how old that calf is, there's a number of factors that come into it. But that's where those adjustments come in. Because if you've got a 13-year-old cow and she weans off a calf at 500 pounds, at 13 years old, that cow is definitely not milking as good as she was when she was, say, you know, more in her prime, that four to six type age. So that adjustment's going to go up. Now, same thing. If you've got a, say, a five-year-old cow who weans off a calf at a thousand pounds, which is very exceptional, that adjustment may go down a little bit depending on how those factors play into it. So that's another thing to look at. These genetic markers or EPDs are, are going to play a huge factor for you to figure out, you know, is that the bull that I want to try and purchase? Right, right. Gives you that, like you said, that insight and kind of additional information on what to maybe expect and everything. There's even some interesting ones that have really come up. And I think they're good things for people to consider. So like a docility thing has been something, you know, a high number if you want cattle, they're easy to uh, to work with. Clawset EPD is another one just to make sure that that claw is, you know, more ideal. And then also uh, foot angle EPD. You know, we've got some cattle that Maybe the genetics are focused more on carcass, which your ribeye marbling is, is going to be very important, but you know, the feet may not be as much of a, an emphasis. And so bringing in those kind of EPDs, let people still make that decision to ensure that the weaning weight, yearling weight is where they want it. You know, all of those basic EPDs that are still important, but also making sure that depending on where you're running your cattle, the, the feet and legs are good before you end up purchasing them. You know, some of these purebred guys that we do have in the county, we've got some good genetics that they ship out. They want to make sure those bulls hold up, you know, shallow healed cattle typically have experienced some issues with getting around and making sure there's a good deep heel helps those cattle hold up in those tough terrain type areas. You know, genomic testing has been a huge thing the last few years, and a lot of people have been sending in either blood or hair, and then they can actually isolate the different DNA components to see exactly, you know, what is that bull's potential for his birth weight or yearling weight, weaning weight, and those types of things. And then also, you know, daily gain is something, you know, what's their feed intake going to be? It's, it's kind of wild with the amount of things that you can do with technology, especially when it goes to the genomic market. Right. Anything in specific that, you know, you want farmers and ranchers to know as they progress through these upcoming production sales? Biggest thing is it just make sure that you're making good decisions for your cattle to fit your operation. If it's a situation where you're limited on feed and maybe don't have the amount of budget as, you know, say some of your, your other producers that are out there, you know, maybe going for that bull that's 150 yearling weight maybe isn't the right decision for you. Um, if you're trying to make sure that, you know, you're keeping your cattle a little bit small and maybe you need to look at having a little bit less milk in your cows too, depending on where you're at. Because if you don't have those feed resources, you don't have nutrients coming in to help make sure that those cows are are able to supply for that calf. Also, a lot of these breed associations have included uh, a mature height that gives you an idea of, you know, am I going to have frame score seven cattle or 
do those cattle grow really fast to where, you know, say they wean off at, at 700 pounds, they get to 12, 1300 pounds and they quit growing. If you're the kind of guy who's really focused on keeping your cow herd, you know, at a, a manageable rate or, you know, below a frame score six, that's an EPD that's going to be pretty paramount to you. So just make sure if you have questions, I mean, the breed associations do list off the different types of EPDs and have great explanations for them. But if you have any questions on some different strategies for how to pick out bulls or any of that kind of stuff, I'm more than happy to talk about that or, you know, not just on the genetic side, phenotype for me is a huge thing. I like to, to look at good cows and always open to, to help out anybody. That's awesome. And that's one thing too, I would say is great resources EPDs are, but like you said, uh, actually seeing the animal too is going to put the picture all together for a person. So we hope everybody listening enjoyed today's episode on the Burley Brew, all things egg. And we hope you continue to listen to our upcoming episodes as we kind of talk about what's going in, what's going on and what's happening in the agricultural world here in kind of our area of North Dakota as well. So thanks, Kelsey. Hey, everybody have a good one. See you next time. We thank you for tuning in on this episode of the Burley Brew, all things ag. We hope you will listen in on future episodes. If you have any questions or would like more information, feel free to contact the Burley County Extension Office at 701-221-6865. Thank you.